Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to this special vidcast brought to you in partnership between Africa Legal and Weber Wenzel. Now we're here today to talk about access and what that means principally with regard to the financial services and the insurance space. And we've even got a sprinkling of data protection and cybersecurity thrown in there as well. Now, myself alone would struggle to come to grips with such a fascinating topic, but luckily I'm joined by four experts from Weber Wenzel today, all of whom have vast experience in a range of issues relating to financial services, insurance, and data protection across the African continent. And these are David de Villiers, Portia Machinini, Wendy Tembeza, and Zelda Swanopol. So without further ado, let's dive right into this discussion. And David, I'm going to start with you. Now, when we think of facilitating access to financial services via technology, uh, we usually think of an end user's ability to gain entry or access existing services. And it's things like mobile banking or quick quote insurance, which springs to mind here. But it can also mean a financial services entity unearthing and engaging with new customers via new products and solutions. So in that context and with Africa still one of the most underbanked regions in the world, what trends are we seeing in, in both directions when it comes to access to the financial services markets? Thanks, Tom. I think um, the first thing to note about Africa is that, as I think you correctly point out, it is, I guess, the most underbanked continent in the world. Um, and when you look at it from that perspective, it might be suggestive of um, perhaps a problem or an obstacle. But the interesting thing is that if you compare the statistics around Africa being underbanked against the level of penetration that there is in the African continent insofar as uh, telephony is con concerned, particularly smartphones, I think that paints a much more optimistic picture and in giving you an overview of the trends that you've asked me to comment on, I think the starting position is to note that all of the trends that I'm about to talk about really occur as a consequence of this really high penetration insofar as mobile telephony is concerned on the African continent. And anybody who is interested in this can have a look at the statistics. And it is, um, it's just remarkable our mobile telephony has managed to make itself um, being felt uh, in the African continent. So I think with that in mind, the first trend, and this is perhaps an obvious thing that I think most people are aware, it's not a new trend, it's more of an ongoing trend, is the level of remittance and mobile money um, access that is currently facilitated throughout the African continent through technology is, is really astounding. And in that regard, I think Mpesa in Kenya was really a, a, a first starter and they've made astounding progress and it's, it's really a success um, story. Um, but there are many other stories um, in the African continent. So that trend is ongoing. Africa in many instances have been a world leader when it has, um, when, when you're thinking about um, uh, mobile money remittances and that's in order to satisfy a specific need in the African continent. The next trend I would say that's um, becoming 
more discernible uh, in the African continent where technology is being used is in the field of so-called branchless banks. And there are many examples of that in the African continent where technology has really, really made it possible for banks to service their customers through non-traditional means. We all think about a bank and you think about a big fancy building with uh, marble tiles and things like that. But if you take the example in South Africa of Time Bank, for example, um, they are not a completely, but a mostly branchless bank. And they've recently reached the three customer milestone. And, and that's really astounding in a very short space of time. And there are other examples as well of banks who are seeking to be branchless, um, discovery being, being one. Another trend that I would highlight here is the way in which artificial intelligence is being used through technolog technological means to um, give greater access to financial services customers, perhaps to products that they haven't otherwise had exposure to. And one example that I can think of here is the use of predictive analytics software, where, for example, software is being used to determine the um, need uh, and also the need for loan financing and also the ability to service loans. And there are many examples of this um, across the um, African continent in, in Egypt and, and Uganda. There are many challenges, of course, to this um, because um, in some countries, weak uh, telecommunications infrastructure might hamper or slow down the progress of this type of thing. But predictive analytics, I think, is something that um, makes it possible for financial services customers who might generally have been thought of simply to be uh, remittance customers now also to be accessed for, for other pros products like, like lending. Another trend, perhaps in its infancy, um, and that will probably uh, pick up in the future, is the use of blockchain-based technologies also to open up new product lines, new service lines. And I think in that instance, um, Zimbabwe is an example where Bitcoin has really been used um, as a means to um, almost um, uh, fill, a, fill a gap in the local economy. And it's being used for money transfers and, and just general commerce. And I think that's just the beginning of a trend where we will see blockchain-based technology again being used as a platform to offer financial services customers access to products beyond the, the, current, um, the current role. And then finally, I guess what we also can say about trends is that um, financial technology can play a role in not only opening up new lines of business to financial services customers, but also improving the overall customer experience. And in that context, an example would be interactive voice response messages that are able to deliver messages to specific um, customers in their language of choice, which um, is important in countries where there might be many, um, many languages that are spoken. And it not only enhances the ability of the financial services um, provider to access the market, but it also increases the overall experience for, for the consumer who's able to get access um, or um, information about products that are available there in the language of that person's choice. So I think um, in summary, there, there are many trends that suggest that Africa is making full use of technology. And in many instances, um, the um, lack or the, the, the so-called underbanked status of the African continent is, is perhaps less of, a, of an issue that, than might, might, might seem at first glance. In many instances, 
innovative people in the African continent have managed to leapfrog in many instances some of their competitors in, in other countries. So I would say it's a really exciting space and, and something that I think we can, we can all look forward to learning about in the future. I'm learning about it right now, David, and I think you touch upon some vitally important trends there. And, the, you know, you use the word leapfrogging at the end there, and I think that is indicative of what Africa's been doing for, for a long, long time. The mobile telephony face, uh, space that you mentioned, I think, is a fascinating one. And we could get caught up with the underbanked status here. But when you have an entire demographic who are banking principally via a device that travels with them everywhere they go, once they are banked, the opportunity, as you put it, to access additional products and services and market and educate these products and services is almost unparalleled. You know, you, you drew the image of the old marble building that used to be the bank. Now, every time that bank had to communicate in, in depth with a customer, they had to choose to visit them. Whereas in Africa, they are in constant reach almost because their banking service, their bank is in their pocket. So yes, we have lower rates, I think, on average than more developed parts of the world. But that's not to mean that this isn't going to be remedied and remedied in a very interesting way in much shorter term than banking is evolved in other markets. So thank you so much for all those trends. I think that's fascinating insight. Um, Zelda, I've got a question for you next as our resident uh, insurance expert. Um, now, an, an, an interesting dynamic here in the insurance market in Africa is that the the market hasn't been recognized as underinsured as much as it's been recognized as, as underbanked. And rates of insurance have been increasing relatively dramatically and consistently for the last, uh, you know, five years or so. So, again, a trend-based question for you. What are some of the key trends that we're seeing with regard to the changing of the traditional insurance markets in Africa? And also, are we seeing a different path being taken in markets such as uh, South Africa, which have been longer established when compared with their younger, uh, potentially more nimble counterparts in other parts of the continent? Uh, thanks very much, Tom. And thanks, thanks, um, thanks for the opportunity. Um, so, yes. Um, from an insurance perspective, access has been um, quite a long-standing consideration in the South African market, and we saw over the num over a number of years we saw very interesting um, developments regarding access to insurance and taking insurance products to um, to the market. And considering the South African market, it's obviously quite a different market. And um, we do see quite a large number of South Africans who have typical funeral policies. And those policies typically are not sold through your traditional means, through traditional brokerages. They're sold through funeral parlors. Um, and over the number of years, we saw different um, methods employed by insurance companies to reach um, the consumers. Interestingly enough, um, and in talking to and in touching on what David has mentioned is, there's quite a few insurance companies and banks who um, cooperate in the same insurance groups in order in order to leverage off um, one another and the access that is granted through the bank in order to gain access to the insurance products and the like. So exactly what you have been speaking about. 
But so in terms of trends, what is quite interesting is the insurance industry has been subject to significant changes um, over the last couple of years, actually since 2013, what we saw as in similar to other, other, other jurisdictions called retail distribution review. And that was intended to be a complete changeover of how we view um, retail um, or gain, giving access to and better consumer outcomes in terms of the services delivered when insurance products are sold. That project has been ongoing for, um, like I say, since 2013. And some of the changes in legislation um, have already been implemented. But what is interesting from retail distribution review is one of the key things is to, to, to enhance um, the consumer outcomes in terms of when products are sold to consumers. Now, what's also interesting with that is um, when you do see regulatory changes and such significant changes like we've seen in South Africa for retail distribution review, with that comes quite a high um, threshold of compliance. And that's probably one of the things that have been quite difficult in the South African market is um, because we are quite a sophisticated market um, in the pro providing of insurance, um, there's quite a lot of um, uh, sophisticated um, regulatory compliance issues that entities have to comply with when they take insurance products to the market. So, for instance, when you provide advice on an insurance product, you have to be very specifically licensed to do so. And for that, you have to, for instance, um, write certain e exams and the like. So whilst um, our regulatory regime and the changes to the regulatory regime has um, attempted to ensure that the regulatory framework is more stringent towards a consumer-based and a more pro-consumer-based outcome, that on the other side has also resulted in quite a lot of compliance-related issues that people have to comply with. And to some extent, that does lessen access or that hinders access because not everybody can write the examinations or, or meet the requirements under those examinations. Which And then talking to your question around um, the other jurisdictions, so our experience with other um, foreign jurisdictions are that their laws are either not as sophisticated as ours or they are still developing their laws. Um, and to some extent, if something is not prohibited, then obviously it's allowed and it's utilized um, to the fullest extent. So that's one of the key things that um, obviously we see in the South African market. Um, some of the other key trends, um, I must say, I have not seen that there is a move away or a complete move away from the traditional insurance market, which is your brokerage-based um, insurance um, business. And the reason is um, people like to see an, a, a person when they speak about insurance, which may be different to banking because you would put your money in a bank and expect that um, your money is withdrawn. Um, and something else to, to take note of, from a South African perspective, we've seen insurance companies focus quite heavily on procuring technology as an enabler or a platform in order to enable better access. The South African consumers do not necessarily all have smartphones where you can read extensive policy terms and conditions um, on your phone. Therefore, there's quite a big focus in the South African market on acquiring tech-based companies or tech-based solutions to allow insurance companies um, for their advisors and for their distribution network to get products to, to consumers. Um, then something else that's interesting to note is 
we, like I mentioned at the outset, is we've seen quite a lot of changes in the South African um, regulatory framework over the last couple of years. Um, and one of them that um, we're all quite keenly looking at is what we call the Conduct of Financial Institutions Bill. Now, what's interesting about that is um, traditionally, the insurance industry was the first of the industries that was undergoing this massive change in terms of how products are distributed to consumers in order to ensure fair consumer outcomes. Um, under the Conduct of Financial Institutions Bill, the South African regulator is seeking to um, level the playing field across all financial products and to align legislative and consumer outcomes for banking business, for insurance business, pension business, and the likes. So we've seen quite a lot of developments. And the question is obviously going to be is, does these legislative developments um, stifle um, access or does it does this enhancement um, of um, um, the regulatory framework and the trends that we've seen in terms of access to insurance, um, does that improve consumer outcomes and, and access to insurance? Um, so I hope that that gives you an idea of the trends that we've seen in the insurance industry um, and still quite a, a, um, an exciting space to, to watch. Just something else in closing, we obviously do have quite a lot of exciting um, um, insurance providers that offers tradi traditional products, but also alternative products. Typically, um, like you mentioned, quick quote products, um, products that you can access through a call center. And a lot of insurance companies have recognized that there's a need for certain brands to be associated with a certain product offering. And they leverage quite well of that all through their partnerships with, with the banks then. Thanks, Elda. I think you touch upon a really interesting point there, which is the balance between access and uh quality of, of end service. You know, we we talk about access generally, but this doesn't mean access to lower quality products. So I think, you know, that's an interesting space to watch. And as a quick follow-up question, I'm interested, individuals may well still be choosing to access insurance products via traditional mediums such as brokerages. In a, in a quick response, um, are brokerages showing any signs of evolution and and becoming more more tech enabled, or are they still maintaining the more traditional physical, you know, in person advice? Interested in your your feedback there? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's a very um, important question actually because the brokerage market or the distribution market is such an important um, avenue. And what's interesting is. Either the insurance companies, we see quite often that insurance companies are supporting the brokerages in order to become more tech enabled. So when I refer to insurance companies acquiring tech businesses, many times it is to enable the brokerages to utilize tech at a cost that's not massive to them to, de to develop. That's on the one hand side. So the product suppliers themselves are supporting the brokerages in order to um, have an evolution in terms of the way in which they provide products and services. And the second is certainly, I think, Retail Distribution Review touched on and affected everybody in the distribution chain. Um, and for that reason, um, you will obviously always have a broker that will have a very traditional means of to provide um, advice or intermediary services. 
But then, of course, you find a lot of um, brokerages and a lot of companies who are tech-based brokerages who provide tech-based advice and intermediary services or what we colloquially refer to as, as robo-advice. Um, and that's quite a, a big development in the South African space and I think um, in the other African jurisdictions as well. Thanks, Alda. A follow-up question again in the regulatory space, which we've touched upon, but I'm keen to dive a little bit deeper. And I think it's uh, yourself, Zelda and Porsche, who are probably best placed to to answer this one. Now, there's a lot of development uh, needed to occur with regard to financial regulations around financial technology or fintech services. In your view, as the sector grows, it becomes, you know, is it impossible, firstly, for the law to keep up? And if it can't keep up, what are the inherent regulatory gaps present in most African jurisdictions around financial technology? Uh, Another point here is to query whether a pan-African approach to financial regulation is an appropriate goal, or is the disparity between fintech use across jurisdictions uh, a problem? So a few points to be made there. Is it possible for law and regulation to keep up with these dramatic tech changes? Is a uh, you know coherent, one-size-fits-all approach even functional across multiple jurisdictions? And you know any other additional points that you want to make in that financial uh, financial technology space? Zelda, shall we start yeah, with you? And then, Portia, I think you, you'll probably have some follow-up points. Yeah, certainly. Um, thanks, Tom. I mentioned at the outset that the insurance space has seen significant developments um, over the past couple of years. One of those developments was the promulgation of the Financial Sector Regulation Act in South Africa, or Twin Peaks, which um, a lot of jurisdictions are quite quite familiar with. And there, some agility was given to the regulators. But I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Portia, um, who will talk a little bit around that and um, the flexibility granted in that legislation. Thanks, Zelda. And thank you, Tom. Um, I think, you know, there's quite a bit of interesting points that have just uh, come up, uh, Tom. I think as a start, innovation um is here, it's inevitable, you know, it's bringing about change uh, in the industry. And obviously, it brings the question of how do our regulators keep up with, you know, how things are changing. And obviously, we don't, we don't want to have a regulator that prevents um, innovation. And, you know, David mentioned um, in his segment that, you know, Africa is making a full use um, of technology. And that brings the question of then, you know, with technology, you know, being utilized as much, how best to regulate it. And Zelda, you mentioned um, enablers. So if we look into the specifics of, you know, enabling the regulator to adapt to the regulatory field, I think we need to keep uh, at the back of our mind that, you know, while the role of the regulator, more specifically uh, in the insurance industry and financial services industry, uh, includes the protection of customers, we do live in a world that is rapidly changing and innovation is tra- changing the traditional ways of doing things. Therefore, it's important you know, uh, for regulators to not discourage uh, innovation by being too stringent in how they regulate um, you know, all this change that is coming in. But there needs to be um, some form of a sufficient balance between the different interests. And um, I think when it comes to you know, regulation in, in, in general, I, I, 
you know, at more specifically, uh, Zelda, you mentioned the Financial Sector Regulation uh, Act, which, you know, brought a bit of agile into the space. Uh, our laws is, uh, you know, our laws are quite agile. And, you know, because of this, you know, regulators have the ability to make uh, legislative instruments. However, there may be a bit of risks that we see uh, there and there because we sit in a situation where, we are in a space where you have the judiciary on the one hand, you have the legislator on the other hand, and then on the other side, you have, you know, the executives and trying to balance and regulate all these uh, interests. You know, you have that risk of blurring uh, certain uh, lines when you're trying to adapt um you know, legislation with um, the cha the changing industry. So um, having said that, I think, um, you know, with the Financial Sector Regulation Act having come into effect since uh, 2017, we have seen a bit of change in, um, you know, the, the regulation and how our regulators are regulating things. Uh, the regulator is playing around or acting uh, with or with uh, things like your think tanks, uh, sandboxes, and tr in trying to react to the changes in the industry that we see. And in response, uh, you find the regulators being in a position where they are able to easily issue uh, regulatory instruments where they are needed. But also in some instances, we have, you know, that um, open door kind of situation where uh, the regulatory industry bodies also have a platform to also call upon uh, the regulator to uh, make um, regulatory uh, standards uh, where, where we are appropriate. And I think, Tom, to your question of um, a pan-African approach, that is a bit of a sketchy one uh, for me because I don't think we can with uh, certainty say that there actually is one or that, you know, um, it's a good uh, end goal because it is quite clear that, you know, there's a disparity um, between the different regulatory regimes across multiple uh, African uh, jurisdictions. We can take uh, an example of, uh, though this is not the subject for today, but we can take crypto uh, as an example where, you know, FICA laws uh, play a part. Considering uh, the high risk of financial crimes, one would expect that there should be some form of uh, alignment around how FICA laws, rules and regulations are applied. But in all, or you know, the various uh, different um, African jurisdictions, FICA laws are applied or looked at or treated, you know, in, in a different manner. And as I mentioned, considering the high risk of financial crimes, one would think that that should be one of the aspects where at least African countries should align, you know, insofar as regulate, uh, regulation and, you know, um, applying uh, FICA laws is concerned. But then uh, back to topic, uh, if we're going to talk about, you know, financial technology and, uh, you know, the regulation in respect thereof, I think that, you know, uh, the likelihood in African countries of financial regulation uh, being uh, aligned is going to be or is uh, a bit difficult. And the reason for that is that our laws are pretty much uh, entrenched in um the framework of insurance uh, regulation. And as such, it is very difficult for, you know, various jurisdictions to try and then align uh, fintech reg regulation outside the scope of their own existing regulatory framework around financial services um, and insurance. Obviously, uh, I think, you know, there's that issue of, you know, how, how do we keep up, you know, with the fast moving pace of, you know, um, 
fast-moving pace of innovation that's changing um, regulation or that is, you know, things that are exposing uh, customers, you know, uh, to to certain risks, considering that, you know, you know, if you leave things unregulated, customers are left exposed uh, in some instances financial services uh, providers as well, you know, would experience certain risks also, you know, from a point of like, you know, how do they handle, um, you know, data, you know, in this space. So I think, you know, uh, keeping up with the fast moving pace of innovation while trying to strike a balance, um, you know, with regulation is a major gap across all African or most African jurisdictions. Uh, regulation around fintech um, from, you know, research and from what we've seen has not progressed at a sufficient pace that one would have expected it to be. Obviously, South Africa uh, seems to have been at, you know, at the forefront of, of uh, fintech, fintech regulations, but a lot of African uh, jurisdictions are kind of trying to, you know, play, um, play, play catch up, if I, if I can call it that. I think you make an exceptional point around the regulatory approach in particular. We all agree that trying to preempt one regulator, let alone 50 plus regulators, is going to be a monumentally difficult task when we talk about this this pan-African approach. And then, you know, taking that crypto approach one step further, let's not even talk about consistency of regulation. Let's talk about consistency of legality. You know, there are ongoing uh, battles with with um, the attempted outlawing um, in, in totality of cryptocurrency. So I don't think that's necessarily a, a hard stop sign, though, for innovation. There is always a way forward, regardless of having to keep your eye on many, many moving pieces. And an, an interesting kind of evolution here actually is, is down to further technology. You know, the regulatory technology market or RegTech, which is something that's evolving at the same pace as fintech and, and, and crypto and so on. And it's actually empowering all organizations to introduce things like, um, you know, AI-driven automatic rule application for data or, or customer scanning or, uh, you know, red flag alerts if, if an algorithm detects that something doesn't look right. So again, yes, a challenging environment, but a very lucrative one, one that the markets yeah. are con- continuing to play in and just an interesting space to, to look at. And for a closing question here, I'm very, very keen to involve Wendy. You know, I just touched upon that issue of data. And it's fair to say that much of the innovation taking place within both the financial services and insurance sectors relies upon the crunching of vast quantities of user and customer data. Now, this brings with it obvious pitfalls when it comes to data protection, especially with many African regulators starting to sharpen their teeth, as it were, when it comes to public data protection. Um, And I'm interested in your view on how can businesses ensure that their, uh, for want of a better word, excitement or necessity to innovate doesn't see them fall foul of data protection regulations, both those that are currently enacted and potential future evolution in that space? Sure. So 100%, um, as you mentioned, you know, the the increase in the data um, that is available as a result of um, 
technological innovations. I mean, it really allows businesses to capture and use customer data in ways that we hadn't contemplated before. I mean, when we think about digitization, having electronic records of, of data um, allows uh, different entities to share information and analyze it in ways that um, we didn't have the capacity to do before. Um, I think David David mentioned earlier um, artificial intelligence and what that can help us glean as well from um, customers, uh, blockchain technology, the use of things like the Internet of Things. I mean, these are just um, um, all access points for data. And so these really allow us to get various um, insights about the customers, which um, will in turn speak to how stakeholders within um, insurance and financial services uh, can then better service them um, and consequently increase um, the customer base and also uh, customer retention. And so given these vast amounts um, of data, obviously the issue of data protection and how you manage that data becomes um quite important. And so it's important to understand that it's not only a regulatory component, but there's also uh, the reputational aspects um, for businesses, particularly in the African context, where you don't necessarily have these established businesses um, you know, who are, are already doing these things, but um, new players coming in, innovative players coming in, wanting to establish themselves. So it's very important to understand um, the, the framework within the various jurisdictions um, in in that context. And so when we look at technological um, innovation and the data protection laws, it's definitely not something that uh, these are not issues that are mutually exclusive. Now we need to understand when we're adopting these technologies, um, how does the, the data protection law um, apply apply to that, particularly in the context of financial services, when you're talking about things such as, uh, you know, cross-border, the cross-border nature of some of the, the services, particularly um, in the context of remittance services, um, uh, that's going to be a huge issue around data protection. Um, because obviously the 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 lack of um, compliance, potentially um, not apply complying in the appropriate way could potentially impede how a business is able to operate within a particular um, jurisdiction. And one of the other things, particularly as well on the continent, we need to think about is um, issues around data sovereignty. And that's the idea that data needs to be governed by the laws in the jurisdiction that it is retained. And so practically, what does that mean for a business that doesn't intend to only operate in a singular um, jurisdiction? Um, it's also um, important to understand as well, um, you know, what the restrictions are going to be around that data. But I think another important thing that people miss sometimes around data data protection laws is that they are not meant to be um, prohibitive in terms of the ability to conduct business, the ability to use the data to service um, customers, to provide services. It's more around ensuring that when you are handling the data, there are some minimum um, protection, some minimum standards that are observed um, so that we can attempt as far as possible to protect the, the privacy um, of that data and of course um, um, increase the data, the protection of, of that data as well. And so it'll be important to think about those things when you're looking at potentially um, using, for example, cloud services, which on the continent will be quite uh, a common way of utilizing um, or implementing certain services, um, having a centralized place of maintaining uh, your data. 
Now, again, the problem on the continent, as mentioned by the other speakers, is that the legislation doesn't always necessarily speak to each other, right? And so from a compliance perspective, that creates a bit of... Um, of a challenge um, because you need to understand within the various jurisdictions um, what compliance means. And if you are uh, cross-jurisdictional, how do you then meet the compliance obligations um, within all the territories that you're uh, intending to to operate in. Um, now, similar as, as Zelda mentioned um, in relation to insurance and in data protection space, there are not all the countries, um, not all the African jurisdictions have adopted legislation. However, there is a, a big move now, um, as there is generally internationally, to implement data protection law. And so even in circumstances where um, a, a, play, a player is trying to move into a space that doesn't necessarily have data protection laws, I think at this stage, um, you know, it would be proper due diligence to think about how one would implement their services, um, having data protection in mind, having the potential risks um, that might uh, flow as a result of that service um, in mind. Now, even though there isn't necessarily, um, you know, congruence on the continent, or even in those countries that um, have adopted data protection legislation, often we see a lot of the same themes coming through. So importantly, ensuring that customers have been notified um, about how their data is being used, themes around data access and allowing individuals to correct their data. Um, and of course, data protection flows and ensuring that there are appropriate controls in that context context uh, is also going to be important. Then, of course, data security, ensuring that there are minimum controls, um, you know, uh, when you when you manage the data. So these are some of the, the broader themes that uh, mirror quite closely to what we see in the EU, um, particularly in relation to the general data protection regulation, which um, has really been taken on in a lot of countries as sort of the, the gold standard for data protection. And so a lot of those similar themes um, are coming through. But of course, how those same themes are implemented within the jurisdictions um, will differ as well. And so it will be important to understand exactly what the nuances are within um, the, the different jurisdictions. If I provide notice in one jurisdiction, is it sufficient for purposes of another jurisdiction? Um, what do my obligations to the relevant uh, regulatory authority look like in the various jurisdictions? And can I do a wholesale compliance? In fact, what you find often now is a lot of service providers that provide, for example, cloud services um, that are cross-jurisdictional have a whole compliance project um, that looks into the data protection compliance obligations. So think about things like that. If you are um, an entity that is uh, going to be relying heavily on third parties to provide your um, your infrastructure, which often is what happens in this space because um, a lot of companies are not geared up for, you know, um, having these huge servers, these huge IT um, infrastructure um, setups for purposes of running this business. And so relying on those third parties, think about, you know, when we're looking at the data components, are we comfortable that they are sufficiently um, robust enough to understand and to assist us in our compliance um, obligations? And also, um, is the, the solution that we're implementing going to be agile enough so that if we move into a new territory or we need to adjust how we're um, providing service um, from a data protection perspective, do they have the capacity to assist us um, in, in that space? Um, 
but one one of the positives is that for the most part what we see with um financial services um providers in particular is that because they're coming from a culture of potentially already heavy um regulation um they are already in the sort of uh culture of compliance and so compliance has been a lot easier for a lot of the more established businesses because um you know that's something that's already been part of their makeup so in that context it's been easier but other industries that might, for example retail it has been a bit more of an adjustment um but for for financial services that the adjustment has been a lot easier um and then i think one other important thing to touch on that is important in this context is the the the, the cyber crime component and ensuring that we are managing how um we uh, reduce our risk in relation to to that um because of course we're now dealing with these large amounts um of data um it just means that they are as I mentioned, um, there's increased reliance on sort of outsourced IT infrastructure and therefore your control of those systems is that much more reduced. And because they're storing these vast amounts of data, the risk is also um, in increased quite a bit. Um, and particularly in the context of the pandemic, where we've had so much more move to using online, um, you know, online infrastructure, online shopping and the like, um, the risk has just increased exponentially. So understanding, of course, that data protection um, and cyber attacks uh, in terms of complying with various legislation in the jurisdictions. So these components might not always be dealt with in the same legislation. And so understanding what these cyber cyber crime components, um, how you got against that in the context of um, a particular jurisdiction, um, the practicalities, again, of complying in that jurisdiction and not potentially complying in another jurisdiction, how do you cater for that as well? Um, these are all issues that are being grappled with um, across the continent. So um, just again, to remember that uh, the, the data protection component and the cyber crime uh, management component are, are very closely linked. And then finally, of course, um, the various consumer laws in the various jurisdictions as well need to be taken into account. Um, in addition to data protection, you have um, a data consumer protection laws that also regulate how customer data um, should be managed. And so it's really about having um, a bird's eye view of the various jurisdictions that you intend to operate in and ensuring that you understand what your your compliance obligation is in the context of the service and how you intend to offer that service. Wendy, many very, very important points made in your in your answer there. And I'm reminded to go back to something that David and I actually uh, uh, touched upon right at the beginning of this discussion, which was around the, the uniqueness of the African opportunity and market. And you talking about the potential for damage to young, innovative startup African companies uh, compared with, say, the longer established, too big to fail entities that we've seen in other markets, such as the uh, the credit score scandal that hit the UK with uh, the US even with massive customer data breaches. And yet none of those organizations uh, failed. Whereas if you look in the African market, the, 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 it's an existential threat 
principally. If they are to mismanage data, the reputational damage could be insurmountable. And I think that offers a really fascinating um, uh, 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 context for these businesses that are involving. They have to live and breathe a respect for customer data. They have to take that bird's eye view, as you put it. They need to be engaging with this sooner than later. You know, we talk about access. That's the entire theme of today's discussion. Access requires you to be in existence. You have to be alive to provide access to something. And if you're not trying to apply the gold standard in data protection, for example, even if you're operating in a jurisdiction that doesn't demand it, you are going to become unstuck. And it's your competitor to say that try to fly a bit close to the sun, it's going to get very Icarus on them very quickly when they get hit with multiple targeted actions from multiple regulators when they do get their act in order and a, a GDPR uh, uh, iteration comes out or a Papier version such as in South Africa. Well, everyone, I'm afraid that does bring us to time. It has been a truly fascinating discussion. We've had a whistle-stop tour through the worlds of financial services, fintech, insurance, and data protection, and I couldn't have asked for a better group of individuals to help me explore this topic. So a big thank you, David, Portia, Wendy, and Zelda, and a big thank you to everyone who has tuned in today to listen to our discussion. If you want to find out more on any of these topics, please do follow a link to the biographies of all of our fine panellists, which we'll make available in the vidcast description. So without further ado, this has been Tom, David, Portia, Wendy and Zelda, and we're signing off for this vidcast. Do take care.